this is your first time joining with us, uh, again, I want to welcome you um, and, and just kind of bring you into what we have been doing um, for about three months now. Uh, we've been journeying through a series entitled The Road to the Kingdom. And uh, with only three Sundays left in the series, this being one of them, um, we find ourselves kind of in the middle of Advent, focusing on love. And it would be very beneficial for us uh, to know what are the parameters, what are the frameworks that we're working with love? Because love has been defined in so many different ways. It's been redefined in more ways than that. Um, if you've ever done a quick Google search on love, it's just as helpful. If you've ever gone to a high school campus to talk to students, what do you think love means? You're going to get an assortment of answers. Uh, a quick Spotify search will give you years of music content. They'll try to attempt to capture what love is, the many contours of what love is. Countless K-dramas uh, and all types of soap operas and poems try to capture it. A myriad of different artists throughout history have tried to communicate what love is through canvas, through sculpture, through dance. And as Cindy Lauper's great hit in 1983, this world has continued to define love time after time. It's been hallmarked. It's, people have tried to incorporate what love is, and it's been commercialized by a wide variety of businesses and organizations. So when asked, how do you define love? Many people will attempt to muster up a definition, but they're only really able to do so based on their will to demonstrate it and their ability to understand it. We need to understand that our understanding and comprehension of love is going to contradict itself sometimes, um, and it's very limited in scope. We live in a world where it's just difficult to demonstrate love to people who are unlovable. We live in a time where love has been defined and redefined to the extent that our ability to understand love results to nothing more than an abstract thought, a relative truth, or simply it's just a fairy tale. And so this morning, uh, we're going to be talking about love, um, and not just any love, but a love that's much greater than any man could ever muster on his own. This morning, we're going to set our focus on defining the perfect moment of love, true love. The title of our sermon this morning is Experiencing the True Love of God Through Jesus Christ. And the text that we're going to be focusing on this morning is John 3, verses 1 through 21. I think it'd be helpful for us to understand, especially with such a familiar text kind of right in the middle of it, uh, for us to understand a little bit of brief context about, you know, what is the background of John um, going kind of back and forth between different books um, kind of sometimes disorients us and we kind of forget that there was a writer, there was a first audience, that there was a date, there was a cultural context this was written in. So very briefly, um, what is the gospel according to John? The gospel according to John, 
is believed to have been written by the Apostle John, one of the 12 disciples of Jesus. Um, Historically, it's understood that this apostle also wrote 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John and Revelation. Um, And scholars have dated uh, this gospel narrative to be anywhere from 80 AD, (laughs) 80 AD, 80 AD to about 100 AD. And what's unique to John compared to the other three gospels is in John chapter 20, he actually gives his goal written in the text. In John 20 verse 31, he writes, these are written, everything that I've written here in this gospel account was written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. Also, many things can be said about John's distinct writing style. Too much to talk about. Um, But the text seems to have a unique flow because of his writing style compared to the other three gospel books. And because of that, it's often been commented that John um, is, is very simple in reading, but it's complex in its theological depth. And it can also be noted that this is the perfect book. This is the perfect gospel narrative to talk about love um, because it seemed that John had a lot to say about love. We see that John wrote more about love than any other of the other gospels combined. Um, He communicated many things. And his goal here was to talk about love, but it was not to just give an exhaustive account of God's love through Jesus. And it wasn't just an exhaustive account of Jesus' life and ministry. Rather, um, John, when he authored this gospel, he emphasized and selected specific signs that would give intellectual and spiritual certainty about who Jesus is, the Son of God, so that by believing in him, Jesus, the Son of God, we have access to that love. We, We can experience God's true love. So this morning... Uh, we're going to be diving into one of the most quoted passages of the Bible, speaking of the immeasurable love of God. In fact, uh, the Spurge, uh, Charles Spurgeon writes um, that this passage is so extraordinary that it could be put in the forefront of all my volumes of discourses, all my writings, as the sole topic of my life's ministry. It's a magnificent passage. Captured in this short passage is the gospel in its most condensed and clarified language. John here is explaining that the gospel is the only way to understand true love because God demonstrated the highest example of love in Jesus Christ. Only in this love. Only in this true love of God is there complete assurance, perfect peace, and an actualized reconciliation with God. So once again, we're going to be in uh, John chapter 3, verses 1 through 21. And in order to examine this text, I've broken it up into three encouragements, three exhortations for us. And so um, as we kind of begin this first section, this first exhortation, this first encouragement for you guys, um, we're going to read the text. 
Um, If you have your Bibles, again, we're going to be in John 3, and we're going to be in 1 through 8 for this first section. It will be on the screen if you don't have your Bibles. But John writes here in verse 1, Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God. For no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. The first exhortation, the first encouragement I have for you guys regarding this section, this, this first eight verses, is begin your journey personally. Begin your journey personally. It, it's through God's love that entry into the kingdom is accessible to those, what does the text say? To those who are born again. And why, why am I saying this? Why, why, why am I encouraging you to begin your journey personally? Years ago, uh, I, I, I used to work at a nearby Christian, um, a, a nearby private school um, and one of the great things about my particular job, uh, something I was really excited about, was I had the opportunity to talk to a lot of students that came from Christian homes or Christian backgrounds. And I got to talk to them about their belief in God. And um, again, uh, it, it was a Christian school uh, with a Christian staff. It had a Christian curriculum. Uh, we had worship services weekly called chapel services. Uh, there were prayer in cra- classrooms daily. Um, and enrollment, if you were a student there at the school or a staff member, you actually got a free T-shirt uh, with a Bible verse on it. And we could wear it every Friday instead of a uniform. We were immersed in Christianity. And yet, sadly, many of my students, uh, many of the students that I got to talk to, they never made a personal decision to trust and believe in God. It was heartbreaking. Many of the younger students uh, would just simply assume that they already were Christians because their mom was a Christian, their their family, they were born into a family of Christians, so therefore they're Christian. they even had a long-standing membership at a nearby church or simply because they went to this Christian school, that they were Christians. After each academic school year, I, I began to notice a trend uh, in these conversations that I had with students. 
I got to see them grow up. Countless students would share with me uh, that they have simply just grown up, that they've outgrown their Christianity, and they couldn't wait to graduate. In a sense, they wanted to graduate from Jesus. They wanted to graduate from the pressures of knowing who God is. They themselves would actually explain to me, they'd find words to communicate that they were just young. Many people would identify themselves as Christians simply because their friends were Christians and they made a decision to become Christians together uh, in elementary school. But now that they're older, they realize that it wasn't real. It wasn't, it wasn't a personal decision. It was collective. Um, and they no longer needed it. With every new semester, they would grow more and more frustrated at the fact that they didn't feel they didn't feel Christian. And so out of this frustration, uh, many of them would say things like, they're just forcing God down our throats. They just need to stop. In fact, I was amazed that some of the juniors and seniors uh, who wanted nothing to do with God were the very same students that would get straight A's uh, in their Bible classes simply because they could memorize pages and pages of gradable information. What was even more ironic and heartbreaking was these were the same students that were awarded trophies for excellence and achievement in Bible. But their understanding of believing in God, their understanding of Christianity, again, it was collective. It wasn't personal. Their understanding of what it meant to be a Christian was not sufficient. Because in order to have a saving faith, In order to understand the immeasurable love of God, you need to begin your journey personally. And for that, I want you to look at, and if you can, kind of go back to verse 1. Look at verse 1. How does John introduce Nicodemus? He's described as a man of the Pharisees, a ruler of the Jews. And scholars even believe, and I think the NIV translates this, um, that he was a member of the Sanhedrin. He was one of the revered 70, something that would be the equivalent of the Jewish Supreme Court. So why does it say, why does John communicate that Nicodemus came to Jesus by night? We got to talk about this on the Wednesday uh, pre-sermon Bible study. Um, I want to encourage you guys to go uh, and join us. Um, But there are three possible understandings of what John meant by night um, that I think would help us this morning to understand a little bit more about Nicodemus. By night could simply be incidental. It could just be um, a time signature. Um, it, It could have no deeper significance. Um, Simply being by night, that time of the day, uh, would have allowed Nicodemus to have that long conversation uh, with no distractions, with no crowds of commoners surrounding him. By night could also be seen professionally, um, emphasizing Nicodemus' intense study habits um, as a teacher of the law by profession. This understanding of Jesus was not um, not really much of a high concern. He wanted to get his day's study in, his reps in first, and then Jesus can wait until after I'm done studying. 
So it could have spoken of his professional career. But not, by night could also be symbolic. And this would be something that John, he does very often in his writings. Where symbolically, by night could be explaining the darkness of Nicodemus' spiritual state. Therefore, when he came to Jesus by night, it's, it's written in the sense of out of the darkness of the night, he finds himself walking to true light, the presence of true light, Christ. Augustine says this, he says, because Nicodemus came by night, he still speaks from the darkness of his own flesh. And another scholar um, writes this, he remarks, he is a man who is drawn to the light, but not yet able to leave the darkness. Look at Nicodemus' language in verse 2 when he greets Jesus. He calls Jesus rabbi. This would have been a courteous address. In some ways, this could be a flattering gesture. He says to Jesus, we know, we know that you are a teacher come from God. Look at this plural pronoun, we. Nicodemus seems to be speaking on behalf of his associates. Since he himself was a Pharisee, this was an honorific title in his society, he is a teacher who wants to simply talk shop with another teacher who had never been through the schools. He was ready to wow Jesus. He was ready to school Jesus. So he writes that Nicodemus said, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God. So Nicodemus goes on. He explains their reasoning to Jesus, and he explains that they see Jesus as a teacher from God because Jesus has performed signs that one can only do when God is with them. But I want you to understand the irony of this statement. Nicodemus seems to have no idea that he's speaking to not just a sign-performing man of God, but he is speaking to Jesus, the Son of Man who is himself God. So Jesus sees what Nicodemus is doing. Kind of like a parent with a child that's trying to sneak around. Jesus sees what Nicodemus is doing. And he moves past these courtesies. This is what he does. He confronts the heart of the matter. John explains that in the previous chapter that Jesus knew all people. For he himself knew what was in man. Look at how Jesus questions Nicodemus' ability to see the truth. And we see this in, in three truly, truly statements where Jesus says, truly, truly, and he, he continues on. So with the first of these truly, truly statements, the literally the amen, amen statements, um, what is Jesus doing? Uh, this double amen uh, what, what Jesus is doing was with this double amen, uh, Jesus is signaling to Nicodemus that there's Something important that needs to be affirmed. There's a truth here that you need to understand. Jesus explains that Nicodemus must be born again in order to see the kingdom of God. And what does John's language mean, born again and kingdom of God? In short, again, there's a lot to be said that we don't have time for this morning. But in short, he is explaining to Nicodemus that he needs new life that can only come from God in order to enter the kingdom of God. And, and if you look at verses 3 and 5, you're going to notice a parallel statement. 
because Nicodemus didn't understand Jesus' first explanation, Jesus, out of love, repeats himself with further detail, with a second truly, truly affirmation. And what does he do? Out of love, he uses imagery to hearken back to well-known passages that Nicodemus would have studied and taught. He was aiding Nicodemus to see the truth. So what were these two sources, these two imageries? One is in Ezekiel 36 where God uses water to cleanse. And Ezekiel 37 of God using wind, the same word for spirit, wind, in order to bring life to a valley of dry bones. And Jesus is trying to explain to Nicodemus that if you do not receive this new life that comes from God's cleansing waters and the breath of new life, you will not see, you will not enter the kingdom of God. So once again, this first exhortation this morning, this first encouragement that I have for all of us here and all of us that are online, begin your journey personally through God's love, entry into the kingdom. His kingdom is accessible to those we're born again. We're going to explain how one is born again in the next point, but for now, I want to argue that each and every one of us must come to a point on this road to the kingdom where we realize that we can't hide behind we know statements like Nicodemus did. On judgment day, God isn't some cosmic bouncer of a club that will make sure that you're with the right group. Or that you can simply name drop a well-known Christian that can vouch for you. This is very important. There will never be a point where you will even see the kingdom if you don't know how to enter the kingdom. This first very important step needs to be a personal endeavor. And for those of you who do not know God's love, who do not know Jesus, I encourage you, I exhort you, I urge you, begin your journey personally. So I want to kind of direct this a little bit. Students, um, maybe my description earlier, you're like, you're describing me. How dare you? (laughs) Students, maybe you're like Nicodemus. Maybe you've been approaching life with a we-know attitude because your parents say that they're Christian. Therefore, you have inherited their faith. But like Nicodemus, in, uh, like Nicodemus, this is an inadequate faith. Simply knowing facts about Jesus is insufficient and it will not save you. Just as Nicodemus didn't simply need a new way of thinking, but a new life from God, you too need a new life that comes only from God. For others of you that are gathered here this morning, I want to ask you a series of questions. Have you, not just the students, have you been hiding behind we language? Have you simply been towing the line of Christianity, hoping that no one will notice? People here might even think that you're a Christian because you hang out with us. Have you been hiding behind doing Christian things 
without facing your personal need to confess Christ. If you are, I want to encourage you, begin your journey personally. And very briefly, uh, I want to share with you uh, of one of my friends uh, that I made in seminary. As an example, um, I'll just call him Joshua. Um, as an uh, example, Joshua did all the right things. He grew up in a home uh, with Christian parents. Um, he, he even had Christian relatives. Uh, he grew up participating in church worship services. Um, he was in Awanas. Uh, he, Joshua even became one of the youth workers because he was always committed and always around. Um, he was recognized as an exemplar of the Christian faith. He was encouraged to go to seminary because he worked so well with the youth so that as going to seminary, he would be equipped for future youth ministry. But when I sat in class with him one night in absolute ruin, he shared with me the shocking realization that he realizes he's not a Christian. He had never begun a personal journey with Jesus. That night, in our systematic theology class, in that night, he realized his need for the gospel message of Christ. He repented of his sin that night, and he placed his faith in Jesus Christ. On that night, in a seminary classroom, he personally committed his life to Christ. If you're like Joshua... Or if you're like some of the students that I described, I want to encourage you, begin your journey personally. Don't feel shame thinking that, what are they going to think of me? I've been hiding all this time. They think I'm already a Christian. Out of love, I want you to know that if you make a profession of faith, if you repent of your sin and realize your need and you tell people about it, you have no reason to be ashamed. You're going to be welcomed by brothers and sisters who want to encourage you and disciple you to know more about Christ and look more like Christ. Begin your journey personally. But how does one become born again? It's not simply by making it a personal effort. So how does one become born again? How do we receive this new life from God? John continues to write in verse 9. Nicodemus said to him, How can these things be? And Jesus answered him, Are you the teacher of Israel and yet you do not understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. If I have told you of earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you of heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And as Moses lifted up the certain in the wilderness, so might the Son of Man be lifted up that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. The second exhortation, the second encouragement I have for you that I want to urge you this morning is believe in Jesus Christ deeply. In God's abounding love, he revealed himself through Jesus to ransom enslaved humanity. There's a lot there, and we're going to try to cover it. Um, please, 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 
Don't misunderstand what I am saying. I am not saying believe in Christmas deeply. I'm not saying believe in Christmas deeply. I'm not arguing for trite platitudes or pithy slogans like put Christ back in Christmas or Jesus is the reason for the season. There could be truth there. But I'm not going to argue those things as if the world needs Christians to take back some holiday. As Dr. Lawson says, and so winsomely says, Jesus did not come to create a holiday. He was born to die for sinners. That's what we celebrate during Christmas. This is what we need to believe in deeply. And this is what Jesus was trying to communicate to Nicodemus. And to do that, he uses familiar references, historical, theological references that Nicodemus knew. Not only knew, but Nicodemus committed his entire life to knowing. He studied this. Verse 9 reveals to us that even though he studied all these things, Nicodemus still remains puzzled. For years, Nicodemus taught a different way of entering the kingdom of God. He taught others to obey the laws of God, devote themselves to God's commands, and submit to the will of God, but he never taught them the requirement of being born again. So finally, Nicodemus asks, finally he asks the right question. How can these things be? One New Testament scholar writes, Nicodemus, like many other Pharisees, were people who claimed to see, but were in fact blind. And I love this, the immeasurable love of God. How is it displayed? Jesus does not give up on Nicodemus. Look at verse 11, where Jesus uses a third iteration of truly, truly. He's not done trying to reach Nicodemus. Truly, truly, I tell you. What is Nicodemus trying to, or what is John trying to communicate about the gospel in this conversation between Nicodemus and Jesus? That this message is dependable. It doesn't rely on mere opinion. It's not debatable. It's not a haphazard guess. Instead, this is objective. It is factual because he, Jesus, has perfect knowledge in which he is testifying to Nicodemus. Verses 11 and 12 answer that weighty question, why Jesus came, the gravity of not just seeing and knowing, but receiving our testimony and believing it. And this receiving and believing are paramount themes throughout John's writings. So Jesus explains to Nicodemus that if he can't believe in the need to be born again, the very point of entry into the kingdom, what good would it do to tell you of life in the kingdom? When Jesus says that no one ascended, Jesus is in, in a sense kind of myth-busting. I don't know if you ever watched that show, but he's kind of debunking these myths regarding Jewish legends. Uh, see, Jews of Nicodemus' time period uh, would have talked about long-ago saints like Moses uh, who made an ascent into heaven um, and received spiritual um, and divine wisdom and knowledge. 
But as one scholar notes, what Jesus does in verse 13 is remarkable. He insists that no one has ascended into heaven in such a way as to return to talk about heavenly things, but rather he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man, He's explained to Nicodemus that he alone, that Jesus alone has the divine authority to speak of heavenly things because he is the Son of God. And in order to explain this further and help Nicodemus understand his need to believe, Jesus refers to another familiar passage found in Numbers 21, verses 4 through 9. If we had time, I would love to dive into this text more. But uh, what do we see in summation? Um, in this text, in the Numbers 21 passage, the serpent was lifted up. And it was God's means of giving restored physical life through faith to the people of Israel that were being plagued and bitten by deadly, fiery snakes that were biting them. And the people of Israel recognized that they'd sinned against God and they desperately needed God's help. So the Lord said to Moses, make a fiery serpent, set it on a pole, and everyone who is bitten, when he sees it, shall live. So Moses was obedient. So Moses made a bronze serpent and he set it on a pole. And if a serpent bit anyone, he would look at the bronze serpent and live. And understand that this reference is not beholding some wonderful cure that God provided. Bottle that up. This reference was beholding God's power to save, accessible through faith, requiring one to urgently place their belief in a means that seemed nonsensical to the rest of the world. By Here in verse 15, Jesus is contrasting physical life that is fleeting with spiritual life that is eternal. He writes, whoever believes in Jesus, the Son of God, will have not just a new physical life somehow, but an eternal life. And don't miss this. What is Jesus explaining? What does this bronze serpent set on a pole signify? Nicodemus would have understood that this bronze serpent would have represented the fall in the garden, humanity's rebellion against God. It would represent sin. So what is Jesus communicating? What does this exalting, this lifting up of a bronze serpent on a pole language mean? This, this is what the verb in verse 16 that God gave his only son is all about. This is what true love is. This is what perfect love has done for sinners. Jesus is speaking of the moment when God, through, his, through Jesus' crucifixion on the cross, was the payment for sin. It was the ransom for sinners that were enslaved to sin. And I wish we had time to unpack this, but I'm going to have to just read it. Paul attests to this very truth. When he writes in Romans 5, verse 8 begins that God shows his love for us. And this is something that's kind of missed sometime in the jolly, jolly, rah, rah Christmas season. We kind of miss this point. Paul writes, God shows his love for us that while we were still sinners, understand that this is the world that we see described in John 3. 
that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, you don't hear that in rah-rah Christmas music, while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son. Much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. So again, the second exhortation this morning, second thing I want to encourage you in is not just to begin your journey personally, but believe in Jesus Christ deeply. Believe in God's abounding love. Believe that God revealed himself through Jesus. Believe that Jesus died to free you from the chains of sin that enslave you. We were once enemies who rebelled against God. Behold his holiness. Behold your need for Christ and his payment. Only then can we truly understand the words that we sang, chains shall he break, for the slave is our brother, and in his name all oppression shall cease. Believe in Jesus Christ deeply. Our final encouragement this morning in the text is belong to the kingdom eternally. Belong to the kingdom eternally. Because of God's love, believers in Christ are reconciled to God. John writes in verse 16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever, get this, whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world and people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. And this section contains one of the most well-known, well-quoted passages of the Bible. John 3.16 You know, maybe you've even recited it, (laughs) quizzing yourself, not looking at the text. Well done. Good for you. (laughs) But out of over-familiarity, many people, they overlook the context in which it's presented. Maybe it'd be helpful for us to kind of pull back the layers a little bit, understand what is this text talking about? What did this love cost? Why is it considered immeasurable? Verses 16 through 18 helps us understand possibly 
in the most condensed way a summary of the gospel. Verse 16 shows us how the lifting up of the sun was the giving of the son that we see in verse 16, um, and how it brought salvation to all who believed. Verse 17 speaks of God's intent and purpose of the son's mission. And verse 18 explains the reality that whoever does not believe is already rejecting God's love and therefore already condemned because he has not believed in the only means of their salvation Look at verse 19. John explains that the judgment stands for those who do not believe. John again uses this light and darkness references um, and their contrasting elements that he uses to explain that there's no neutral ground when it comes to our affections. We either love the light or we love the darkness. John seems to be communicating here And tying together this understanding that saving belief is not shallow. It's not shallow, but rather it is deeply, deeply rooted in one's life commitment. This belief is not merely some intellectual assent, mentally affirming something as true, devoid of any life transformation. This belief is rooted in an unconditional commitment to dovetail the works and faith of our transformed life. For those of you who would consider themselves believers this morning, are you belonging to the kingdom eternally? This is not just a message calling the lost to repentance. If you consider yourself a believer this morning, are you belonging to the kingdom eternally? Or, just as I referenced before, In my other questions, are you attempting to be a committed Christian without being committed to the community of Christians that God has placed you in? Are you hiding behind things like serving and volunteering? I don't know if I can say that. Are you hiding behind serving and volunteering or even calculated giving just to seem too busy to interact with other believers? Are you believing in a Christianity where you can avoid connecting with other believers in the kingdom? Or are you earnestly finding ways to journey with other believers, to belong? with other believers. What is your affection for the church? Where is it? I am urging you that this is what it means to be a believer. You can't divorce the eternality of the believer apart from the eternality with other believers. You don't get a heaven with just you and Jesus for eternity. There's a reason why we're called the body of Christ. This means that we believe that eternal life with God has already begun. Eternal life with other believers, eternal fellowship with others in the kingdom has already begun. So for that, I want to encourage all of you guys, seasoned saints to new believers, if you are a believer, belong to the kingdom eternally as well. You have been reconciled to God. You have experienced true love in Christ. Express this love 
by belonging to the king and the king's people. So, um, as I conclude our time this morning, the words of Augustine, uh, Augustine, uh, the cross was a pulpit in which Christ preached his love to the world. This is God's love. This is the assurance of true love. This is what it means to believe in and be born again. This is what gives us entrance into God's kingdom. This is what it means to belong to the kingdom eternally. It is because of God's love, believers in Christ are reconciled to God. I exhort you, begin your journey personally. Through God's love, entry into his kingdom is accessible to those born again. And I challenge you, don't just begin your journey personally. Believe in Jesus Christ deeply. Only in God's abounding love, he revealed himself through Jesus to ransom enslaved humanity. Belong to the kingdom eternally. And I urge you, don't just believe. Belong to the kingdom eternally because of God's love. Believers in Christ are reconciled to God. Our response this morning is this. God, grow our love for you and teach us how to live in response to your love. 